You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Well, good morning. Let me add my own happy Mother's Day to all of the different kinds of mothers in the room, to my own watching online. Uh, And I'm just so thankful to be part of a church community where it's okay to feel all the feelings on a day like today, where no matter what emotions Mother's Day stirs up for you, that's okay. You're welcome here, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, My name is Pastor Chris. I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here, primarily looking after youth and working with our children's team, which is such a delight. Uh, I've been tasked with the passage this morning that commentaries start with words that you don't want to read if you have been tasked with preaching. Words like disturbing, avoided, (laughs) troublesome, These are not the words you want to find when you first spend time reading the passage and think, commentaries will surely help me out here. The scholars will have something to say. And then you turn to them, and they begin with words like that. Uh, In my chatting with a few other people, even pastors, have you ever heard a a preacher preach on this passage? No. (laughs) Mother's Day. (laughs) Sounds great. Our passage is Luke 16, verses 1 to the first part of verse 8, the shrewd manager. And our trouble lies in our inability to reconcile a wealthy landowner who throughout Jesus' many parables represents God the Father, and he is seen in this parable to be commending his shrewd manager for his underhand, under the table, dishonest dealings. What are we to do with the God who will commend that? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is to place the parable in its original length. So if you've already turned there in your Bibles or you're very familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you may be saying the screen says verse 8, but in my Bible it looks like it continues, and yes, it sure does. But along with several scholars, I believe that verse 8, the first part of verse 8, actually ends this parable. And then what follows is a shift in Jesus' teaching to a teaching on the idolatry of money. So if we shorten what it looks like in our Bibles, that will help us a lot. When we focus in on Luke 16, verses 1 to 8, it allows us to put on a certain lens like colored sunglasses that help us raise to the surface the key message of our passage for this morning. It's important to keep in mind when I'm talking about kind of shifting how it's packaged in our Bibles, that we remember it was only really in the third or fourth century that uh, chapters were introduced. And so if we look at some of the parallels of Luke chapter 15, the Hall of Fame prodigal son story, with our most avoided Luke 16, we see a lot of parallels, and it helps us greatly in our interpretation. So some of those parallels... 
Each has a noble figure, a wealthy landowner, a rich father, who demonstrates his extraordinary grace to a wayward soul. Both stories contain an ignoble son or manager who wastes the master's resources, squandering it away. In each, the wayward person reaches a moment of truth regarding those losses. There's a uh, repentance pivot that happens. In both cases, the son and manager throws themselves on the mercy of the noble master. Both parables, they deal with the broken trust and problems resulting from it. Strong parallels between the prodigal son, shrewd manager, Luke 15, Luke 16. In light of all this, I'm convinced that our parable for this morning continues in the same vein of many of the theological themes that appear first in the parable of the prodigal son. This theme that I want to focus our attention on this morning is the nature of the heart of the father and how he interacts with wayward hearts. So if we're going to keep in mind in the rearview mirror, Luke 15 and the prodigal son, let's recap that just a little bit. You're probably familiar with it. If you've ever been to a retreat or a camp, you've probably heard it preached on. This is the like go-to, you think of the mission strip, hey, guess what, you're preaching prodigal son. <laughs> That's what I'm turning to. Uh, this is the hall of fame of all of Jesus's passages, but allow me to bring out a couple of themes from it. If you're familiar at all with the passage, you know that the story goes, there's a younger son and an older son, and the younger son goes to the father with a scandalous ask. He goes to him saying, in essence, I would like to go on my way, living my life as if you were dead, dad. So would you split your inheritance now? I'm out of here. I want nothing to do with being your son. I'm going to go and live my own way. And the scandalous part of the story is how the father responds that the father goes to great lengths of putting on display the shame the son is putting on him by actually selling off land and animals, dispersing things so that he can give half of the inheritance to his son now early and send him on his way. There's no ATM. <laughs> There's no discreet way to split his wealth. This is putting up the for sale sign, driving the for sale sign into the ground for all to see, selling off land in order to send his son on his way and give him his wishes. This is not your average teenage angst. This is slap you in the face rebellion from a son to a father. And it begs the question, when have you and I ever treated our Heavenly Father like that? When have we turned our back on the one who only is ever turned towards us? And the scandal is that the Father agrees. He does the work. He puts in the effort, putting on display the shame, the dishonor, and the son heads off to a foreign land and squanders his wealth. And in this word squander, there's such elements of wastefulness, of throwing away without thought that which has been inherited by him. 
But then the son hits his proverbial rock bottom. We see this moment where the son has that look in the mirror moment where he says, this cannot go on. I can't carry on like this any longer. So he devises a plan to return to his father and beg for a lowly paid worker position, a position that he reasons in his mind will somehow allow him to repay his father, to slip back into his father's good graces without asking for too much. He's not asking for sonship. He's asking to be a worker. He's prepared to repent, sort of. (laughs) He's coming back to the Father, but he's not wanting to come back to restored relationship. And in Luke 15, we see how the Father responds. And this is where this story, I believe, gives us the best window into the heart of the father of any parable that Jesus tells. We learn of a father who has been on the lookout, desperate for the day, hoping, longing for the day that his son comes over the horizon to return home, and this father sees him while still a, still a far way off and recognizes him and runs. <laughs> This is not something that happens. For a dignified, wealthy man to hitch up his robes, exposing his legs and run is the most undignified thing that is hard for us to comprehend. This father knows that the son will have to walk the walk of shame past the other farmhouses, through the village, on his way to return home if he goes it alone. So the father runs to him to save him the embarrassment and the likely harm that the local villagers will put on him because of the shame he put on his father. So the father goes in full display of everyone, saving his son from that harm, from that shame and embarrassment to bring him back home again, to walk that road together. And the son, he does nothing to earn this. We know he doesn't even get his I'm sorry fully out. The father wraps him in his loving arms and restores him to full sonship. Regardless of the younger son's motivation in returning home, the father is simply glad that he has come home. So if that is Luke 15, What is familiar for us that I hope God is stirring something in you? Why are we looking so much at 15 if 16 is our passage? And I'm not just trying to avoid 16. We're going to get there in a second. Like I said, there's these sunglasses I want to put on through which I want to read Luke 16. And we need to understand before we get there three things. The first is that we are all prodigals. We are all prodigals on a journey. We all have rebelled against our Heavenly Father. As broken people who sin, sin which breaks the heart of God, separates us from Him, we all have done the unthinkable in response to only ever having received love and grace from the Father. We need to sit in that, 
feel that to the core of our being. We are all prodigals on a journey. And second, we all need to return to the Father. It's a need we all have. We all need to have that moment of repentance. I love the physicality in the prodigal son story that he was in one place in a far off land having the look in the mirror moment and then he comes to his senses and says, even my father's workers have it better than me. I must get up and go. It's the image of repentance. We are turning one way, we are walking one way, we turn and face and head a new direction. That's what repentance requires. We all need to return to the waiting open arms of our Heavenly Father. And then third, having returned to the Father, here's what we need to get. We are still both holy and sinful. We know this, we just struggle to admit it. Having returned to the Father doesn't mean that we're suddenly perfected and without sin. As human beings on this journey called life, we have, will continue to have the capacity for both good and evil, righteousness and sinfulness. It's the incredible tension found within Scripture. Sinful, holy people. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 1 Peter 2.9-10, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Scripture is so clear, holding the tension of both together. We are both holy and sinful. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just because we've returned to the Father once doesn't mean we never have to again. Let me say that a different way. Never get to again. As I take you through this parable, I want you to see how does the Father respond to his children, to wayward hearts, even as we continue to live within this tension of sinfulness and holiness. Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. 
the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. This is the word of the Lord. So we have a rich, wealthy landowner and his hired manager or a state steward. This is in agricultural context which Jesus is speaking into and speaking about. Something extremely familiar to Jesus' first audience. In this parable, we are introduced to the wealthy landowner who is renting out what is obviously a significant amount of land, and he's requiring back a portion of the harvest. This is just what happened. This was the everyday marketplace transactions which Jesus was speaking into. Now, by all accounts, the landowner, he's a good man. There's nothing in our passage that tells us he was either demanding too much or in dishonest dealings with the manager in cahoots with him. Nothing about that. So that's what we know about the wealthy landowner. And then we have the manager who's been wasting his money and likely earning the master along with him a bad reputation. This is something that has to be dealt with. It is reflecting back on the manager, or sorry, back on the landowner. The landowner must act. And so the sources come, trusted sources, sources that cause the landowner to trust them and step into action and intervene into his manager's dealings. There's no real questioning involved in the encounter. Did you catch that? There's no questioning. There's also no pushback. He fires him on the spot and demands he hands in the books. If you've ever talked with a child caught in the act, you know the impressive ability of coming up with excuses. Yet there are none seen here. I think that tells us something about just how well the manager knows the landowner and what he knows to be true of the character of the landowner. This landowner is a fair man, and right must be done. But the manager devises this plan He's a shrewd fellow is the word that we'll eventually see him be commended for. There's a wise, self-preserving nature to this man that runs deep. And so he devises a plan, and he's got to act quickly, because as soon as he hands the books back to the landowner, he loses all his authority. But maybe, just maybe, in the hour it would take for him to go get the books and bring it back to the landowner, he can make some moves, some power plays in order to win him favor down the road. You see, as long as the books are still in his possession, he has a certain degree of power. So he agrees, he calls them, and makes the agreement to lower the rent. And it's interesting, I actually read that while it looks like different amounts, and so you wonder, is he just coming up with randomness, it was lowered by a similar dollar amount. So it was like saying, take $500 off the bill, and he did that with the olive oil and the wheat to the same dollar amount represented there. And of course they agree. What tenant 
doesn't agree to lower the rent, but they are forced to write it in their own hand so that suddenly they are in on the deal with the manager and can't go back to the landowner saying, I had no part in it. It's written in their own hand. What we need to understand is the reputation of the wealthy landowner just went through the roof. This is a generous man. Now, it it was somewhat common uh, for the rent to get adjusted in agreements like this based on the harvest. And so we can assume that that the tenants would have guessed that the manager and landowner had gotten together and discussed the rain and the weather and the seasons and, and, and been generous towards their tenants by lowering the rent to reflect the harvest. And so a party would have been thrown in the local village. This is the best one to rent land from. He is a generous man. And along with that, the manager's reputation goes up a couple notches as well. The manager is the one walking the land. He's the one checking on the fields to see how the harvest is coming to ensure his landowner's investment. Clearly, he had a part in the negotiations with the generous landowner as well. And so it said clearly, so that they will welcome me into their homes. It's the security of a future job. These guys, these women, these farmers will owe me one. And I can call in that favor whenever I wish. So what does the landowner do? Well, he lets it go. He goes along with the plan. It's scandalous and off script. He's really only got two choices. Legally, he could go to the village and explain, not my manager anymore. (laughs) He made the deal without me knowing he was fired. He shouldn't have done that. He did it off the record. Sorry, pay up the full amount. The party comes to a crashing halt. The party in his honor, praising his generosity, becomes a gripe session attacking his unfairness. Or there's the second option. The master could remain quiet, pay the price of this clever rascal's salvation, and continue to enjoy his reputation as a generous man. He is a generous man, after all. He already demonstrated this by releasing the man from his employ and not jailing or selling him. He could have gone to such lengths as to sell the manager and his entire family to recoup some of the losses, and that would have been viewed as acceptable and right. And Jesus flips that on its head and completely paths parts a new path. The wealthy landowner's generous nature led him to refrain from either action. And then the manager, in light of the ordinary, extraordinary grace he received by only being excused from employment, builds this ruse on the basis of his unshakable knowledge and trust of the generous nature of his master. One could say that he goes on sinning that grace may abound. 
As we see at the end of our parable, he is condemned for his action, but praised for his confidence in his master's generous, gracious nature. And that's where the parable ends. Sometimes we think the parable of the prodigal son has this beautiful, happy ending with the fattened calf getting slaughtered and the parties going on and the son has the ring and the robe and the sandals and he's restored to relationship. But we forget about the older son that is left and we don't know what happens. In this parable too, we don't really know what happens. It's troubling to say the least. There's a show I've watched on TV called The Voice. Is there any voice, the voice followers in the house? Yeah, so it's actually getting, I was shocked, it's a little dated now. It first aired in 2011, which is a pretty long run for a show. In the show, you have these singers who have prepared their whole lives to perform for audiences and judges to earn favor. And as the show goes, if you've ever seen it, there's a number of judges. They sit in these giant chairs, but their backs are turned to the performers. And what the performers are longing to see happen is the judge hit the button, spins their chair, and in that action, they are saying, I want you on my team. And the show does this marvelous job. It pulls the heartstrings as it shows you the story and the background and the family of each singer before they ever get to the moment of actually holding the microphone and singing for the judges. So you're invested. (laughs) At least I am. I'm all in. (laughs) I believe in this person. The judges are going to turn. You can see where I'm going with this. How many of us view God like a judge? Like a judge we're performing for, pleading with to turn around and accept us into their arms. The most heartbreaking stories are the ones you've gotten invested in and then no judge turns. And the camera does a masterful job at panning from the singer just pouring their heart out into the microphone to the judge's stoic, unturning, unturning faces to the pleading faces of the family in the audience desperate for a judge to turn around and accept the performer for who they truly are. Like the son in the prodigal story, we reach out to the father without throwing ourselves fully into his arms. We reach out, but only so much as to warrant that we don't have to depend on him fully. If he doesn't accept me, it'll be okay. I'll just just take a halfway step. That way, if he's not looking for me, if he doesn't meet me, if he doesn't turn around, I won't be that disappointed. Friends, this is not the God we read about in the Bible. Nowhere does the image of a judge with his back turned from us that we have to perform and plead our case with in order for him to be turned towards us. It just doesn't fit with what we read, especially here in Luke 15 and 16. 
We have a God who is waiting with open arms. We have a God who commends a small grain of goodness in the midst of our sinfulness. There's a really interesting audience shift that Luke 15 and 16 shows us. If you flip back to Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law were muttering, Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, though obvi- those obviously far from Jesus. And to them he speaks the prodigal son. You are a prodigal. You need to return to the Father. And then Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples. With all those who just loosened to Luke 15 still in the audience within earshot, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. And I think the question we need to ask is, What can we learn about the Father's heart for those who still have wayward hearts? Once we've returned to the Father, how does the Father continue to view us as we continue to walk with wayward hearts? What we'll find is this parable has plenty to say about that. I want to suggest three characteristics of this father that we need to work deep down into our very core if it's our desire to follow him with our whole being. The first is this. God treats wayward hearts with justice. There is no wiggle room for argument and excuses with this father. There is little question in our parable that wrong has been committed and someone must pay. We see this in the immediacy of his actions. The wealthy landowner will not tolerate the dishonesty continuing. He must act and something must be done. Someone must pay. Here's what I think we're often quick to forget. We may understand to a degree that we're prodigals, but then we tend to think that God suddenly Once we've returned to him, he becomes soft on sin. At least my sin. (laughs) Maybe not the sins of other people, but at least mine. We tend to think God gets a little soft on. Psalm 5, 4, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. Oof. But there is another thing we need to learn of God's character. God treats wayward hearts with grace. We see this in the manager being fired, not jailed or sold. There is a great graciousness saying, you have chosen to walk in this, so go. The prodigal son, I will do right by you your request for inheritance I will honor. More than a scandal, it's grace on display. Grace is seeing the good and the bad and choosing to not condemn. 
And this display of grace right at the start of our parable weaves this theme through the rest of the story. And then lastly, as we continue on in that theme, as we come to the end of the parable with grace on full display, we learn of a God who calls the goodness out of wayward hearts. Or put another way, God affirms what's good in us and in our actions. Remember my unpacking or the reading of those scriptures of the good and the bad, sinfulness, holiness, righteousness, sinfulness. We live in the tension. In trying to understand this passage historically, we wanted to dive into the motivations of the manager. Was he really trying to get in good favor of the other tenants, or was he trying to lean on the goodness of the father? And it doesn't really look like the father, wealthy landowner figure cares. (laughs) Why did the prodigal son return home? He was hungry. The father didn't care. He wanted his son back. The parable isn't laying out, this is how you should act in the world. (laughs) Even though there's elements of wisdom and self-preservation, which are good biblical things that the Bible speaks of elsewhere, here we see God seeing part of his own character on display in the manager's actions. God knows all of it. Motivations misguided as they may be and just wants us home. Think about this if you've ever raised a child. You don't raise a kid by calling out every single little misstep and reminding them of that misstep again and again and again and again and again. They're going to stop hearing you, for starters, or listening, uh, but that's going to lead nowhere good. You want to draw out the good. Call out the good in this person. It's what I try so hard to do with my kids because the easier path is just to shine a spotlight on the missteps they make. You and I, we need to know what Jesus calls out in us what Jesus affirms in us. Otherwise, we're going to spend our entire life seeking the stage of life to perform for a God-like judge trying to turn that chair around. Some of you know I shared, I think I shared at the Oasis uh, event a little while ago, my granddad was a Presbyterian minister. His whole life, lived many places in Canada, uh, many small towns, was obviously a different era uh, where the minister held a certain prestige and position within the city hierarchy. The hardest season for my grandfather was when he retired and had to hang up that mantle. That thing that he spent his whole life trying to live into as a performance on display for others, he simply couldn't give up. 
He was so unhappy because he couldn't preach anymore. What a reminder this is to me as I too literally pick up the, <laughs> like, here I am preaching, which can feel like a performance. But that's not just for ministers and pastors. We all perform and seek the acceptance and approval of ones that we were never created to chase after. I am deeply loved. Before a word came out of my mouth when I stepped up here, before you put a finger to the plow of raising your family, of going to work, of living in community, you are deeply loved. Our job is to have our ear finely tuned to hear the Father's voice. I love the image of John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. Listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So here's the question I want us to ask God this morning. Just like the missions trip, we're praying that you would hear from your heavenly Father this morning. God, what good do you want to affirm in me or speak over me this morning? There's this beautiful Wren Collective song that goes, what if just three words could change the world? You are beloved. With your fractures, failures, flaws, and scars, you are beloved. You're the apple of God's eye, his treasure and his prize. What if just these words could change the world? We are your beloved. Oh, how we need to hear that this morning. Every morning. Again, our parable is not just about, like the prodigal son, an initial return to the Father, but what do we do with a God who is still turned towards us as we need to return and return to the Father? I don't just need to hear him affirm something good in me once and I'm good to go on with my life in my brokenness. I need it every day. So what does God want to speak over you this morning? Uh, we're going to take a minute or two right now uh, in silence, trusting that our God is a God who speaks and moves by his word and his spirit, that there are things he wants to affirm in us together this morning. So would you pause, quiet yourself, ask God, is there anything, what is it that you see good in me, where even maybe all you see are misguided motivations and things tainted with humanness, God still wants to go in and pick something out and say, this is what I love about you. You are my child. I made you. I place this in you. This is what I love about you. God, would you speak now?
God, we are your beloved. Father, would we not lose sight of the prodigal child in each one of us and our need to return home, the place we were created for, relationship with you, sonship, daughtership. And even once we've returned, would we never think that your open-armedness towards us was only a one-time offer? But God, that is your posture towards us. Love, grace, acceptance. So God, I pray that this question would disturb us like the commentators said of this passage. God, that somehow there could be a good called out in us, even in an area that might surprise us. God, would you continue to speak that out? Would it not even just be a, oh, I hear from you at Sunday morning, gathered together as your people, but I can hear from you Monday morning in the chaos of family and kids or the silence of aloneness, I can still hear you and what you affirm in me. You're a good God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.